blowing up something, and most of you will remember the report which we gave you last week about four teenagers in Greenhead, Indiana, who said that they were buzzed by flying saucers. Now that story interested me very much, and, uh, and after going over the thing, I decided that it would stand a little bit of checking. For one thing, I didn't uh, exactly believe all of it, so I meant to now that I believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it. Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, everyone, I am alive, I'm above ground, and yeah, I haven't quit the show. I'm here. As I say, it's just been a bit of a um, balancing game as of the last couple of months to try and sort some things that are quite close to home. I love doing the show, I love the topics we cover, but sometimes, unfortunately, we just have to do things that are required of us. So, yeah, it is what it is. I've also been quite ill this winter here. It's been, yeah, it's been something else. I've um, I've not had the dreaded COVID, but I've had several fluish and sinus infection type things. It just seems like every time I start getting better, I get sick again. And then lately, I have got a thing called seasonal vertigo, which I first discovered I had about, oh, 10 years ago. No, even longer than that, about 12, 13 years ago. And what happens is you get dizzy right? just standing or looking up a lot of times. You get dizzy. You feel like you're uh, seasick or, or drunk. You know, when you look up and you see the lights spinning. That's what it's like, and if you are sitting down and you get up too fast, or you're laying in bed and you turn over, um, yeah, that happens, and it, it's, yeah, it's not the funnest thing in the world. When I first had it, I thought that I had uh, blood pressure issues, and I was really quite concerned, but yeah, the doctor said it's seasonal vertigo. Now, I haven't had it this bad since the initial time I had it, which would have been about 2009, 2010. But yeah, it's um yeah, it's something else. It's I mean, I could have worse things, but I'll I'll get up, I'll try and walk and uh stumble or fall into the wall. So if anybody comes to do a welfare check on me and you find bruises all over, you'll know I'm not being beaten by anyone. I'm just stumbling into walls. So yeah, it's been uh been a, ch a challenging few months around here. And as I say, folks, I would be lying to you if I told you that I was keeping up on events in the world as far as the paranormal and the unexplained, because uh, sadly, I haven't been. But we're going to change that. We're going to change that soon. First and foremost, I've got a few announcements to make. The first announcement is that, you know, technically, uh, I like to keep things in order around here when we do the shows and when we do the episodes. And I told you that we were going to finish up Season 4 with Betty and Barney Hill. We still are, okay? But we've got a few things to slide in there as well. So I've had a couple of people reach out to me. One is a longtime contributor to the program, Chaz of the Dead. And Chaz asked me to cover something that's quite timely. So we're going to move that to the front burner. In fact, I recorded with Chaz earlier today, so I'd like to get that edited and up in the next couple of weeks. 
And then there's another gentleman who's reached out to me, and we've been in discussion since April about an upcoming documentary, which he's actually going to be releasing very soon. So we're going to try and get him on, get it recorded, and get it put out as well very quickly. So we will see how quickly I can turn these things around. Now, all of this does matter because I told you from the get-go when we started doing The Paranormal Sun that unless some Russian oligarch came along or multi-billionaire philanthropist, whatever the case may be, to sponsor the show and let me continue doing it, eventually I was going to have to go back into the workforce. Well, my friends, that time is now. It is a double-edged sword. Of course, it will mean a little less time for the show, but it will mean that I can actually pay the bills and get back to a sense of normality in life. I know that's not always a good thing, but um, I'm not quitting the show. The plan is right now is to still do the program, and in fact, in the near future, you'll see very little change, and the reason is I've been had my hands full the last few months with other stuff anyway, and that's part of the reason why this episode's a little more delayed than I wanted it to be. I wanted to get it out sooner, but I've been running around trying to get things organized for this upcoming job. So I will be starting this new job in September. And from then on, we will have to see what we're going to do about the show. And what I mean by that is the format and the recording time and everything else. I honestly don't know. I haven't put a lot of thought into it aside from the fact that I want to continue doing The Paranormal Sun. And like I say, these interviews, the one that I've already got recorded that's going to be coming out soon, these are the reasons why I, I just continue to find great value for myself and interesting topics for you, the listeners, all over the world. And you are all over the world. We're well over 120 countries now, folks. We've just flown by it. As of just before I got on the air, some of the countries that have joined us are Latvia, uh, Mongolia, just on and on and on. Guyana, I mean, thank you. Uh, or sorry, not Guyana, Guinea. Guinea in Africa. So, yeah, again, just from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for those of you that are tuning in and listening to a lot of the old shows. I see a lot of people in India have been giving a lot of listens while I've been on hiatus. And look, I really, from the bottom of my heart, I really do appreciate it. And one of the positives about actually earning a paying wage is that once we get our feet on the ground and I can get some bills caught up and everything else, then we'll have a little bit of a budget for the show. And what I mean by a little bit of a budget is, hey, we're probably going to do a giveaway here or there. I would really like to do that for you loyal listeners who have been listening since 2020. Uh, yeah, it, it would, uh, would mean a lot to me to be able to give something back to you. So, yeah, by all means, folks, it shouldn't affect things too much in the short term. The plan is still to get through Season 4 as quickly as I can. And then in my new role, I'll have three months of training up front, so I'll probably be pretty busy with that, but I'll do my best to juggle the show as well. The training is probably going to be a bit more intense than the day-to-day -day activities of the job, because obviously when you're doing the training, you need that knowledge and you need to focus on it. So we're going to do our absolute best to keep that uh, flowing through, though, as best as we can and keep the shows I mean, like I say, right now, you're not missing much because I haven't put out anything for a while. But uh, hopefully tonight's episode changes that. 
Now, one other quick note I just want to make. I'll be catching up with the guys from the old 77 again here shortly in the next. We're going to record this upcoming week, so probably in two to three weeks it'll be out. And I'll make sure to mention it on air or uh, update it for you when it comes out. But we're going to do things a bit differently this time as well. Yes, I'm going to be on there and we're going to have general discussions. But I've also got something special planned for the team over there at the old 77, Missouri related. So you'll have to tune in to find out what that is. But very interesting. And I think that you will enjoy it, especially if you enjoyed the Pennsylvania episodes with Nate Odd. I think that you will definitely enjoy this. Now, as for the main topic of tonight's show, we're going to do, we're going to dust off a little ditty. We're going to dust off the uh, the CIA files. So I actually started this well over a month ago. I recorded an intro and I got about this far. And then, yeah, unfortunately, duty called. I got pulled off. And now that information is so out of date that I'm just re-recording the intro. And I've got the files picked out, and then we're going to do the files and and go from there. Now, hopefully, touching wood, I'm just tapping my desk here, although it's not wood there. That door is a little bit better. I'll just touch wood. Hopefully, touching wood, after we get done with this episode, the CIA episode, the next couple of episodes will be the one with Chaz, and then uh, Betty and Barney Hill episode, I think it's four, but it could be five. I've actually got the script written here at my desk, I'll tell you, and it is a thick one. Um, yeah, part five, so we'll be doing that in the near future. I'd like to say by the end of this month, I'll do my absolute best. Like I say, I've just got to get the uh, got to get the stuff for work sorted first, and this has been very intense. This um, this whole uh, process around the work. I mean, it's just taken a lot more time and effort than. I have generally had to in the past, but it's a good thing, and it's going to be something that's stable, and I don't have to worry about, um, yeah, uh, hopefully I don't have to worry about being made redundant or anything like that. It's it's something good, folks, and it will be good for me, and what's good for me, I think, is good for you as the loyal listening audience. Aside from that, I'm not going to go into any news or anything. We're just going to get straight into the CIA files for this evening, but again, if you're listening to this, pat yourself on the back. I really do appreciate you taking the time to support the show and listen to the show. So again, from the bottom of my heart, just thank you for keeping up as I've had life get in the way, unfortunately. So I do hope that you enjoy these. And as always, they'll be numbered. So each file has an individual number going back to when we first started doing this. And if you want to know more information about any certain file, just say to me, Hey, JT, this episode of the CIA Files, whatever one it is, if it was episode 6 or 8 or whatever, file number 32, can you send it to me or can you let me know a bit more about it? And I will be happy to send it off to you. So without further ado, we're going to get into it. Again, just to give you that little bit of background, for those of you that haven't heard the CIA Files shows before, or even if you just need a bit of a refresher, there's a gentleman named John Greenwald who formed a website called The Black Vault, and over several years, John Greenwald gathered thousands of documents from the CIA from Freedom of Information requests, and he saved them all up, and then he got them moved from kind of archaic file types into .pdf, 
and he uploaded them onto his website. And people like me have been going through them ever since. So I think in total there are about 17, 1800 files. And we've only worked our way through, oh, about 50. So there's plenty more to go there, folks. And it is something I get a lot of requests for. It's something that is a uh, favorite of uh, you listeners. So I do hope that you enjoy these. And I just thought it would be something to break up the news of the damned and all of that, give you something different. So without further ado, it's time to crack open the vault and get to it. Right, so you long-term listeners of the CIA files would understand what goes on here. Now, sometimes we get a file that's quite meaty, and sometimes we get files that are very brief. So we go through them one by one. And also, every once in a while, you will have JT say that uh, I'm going to pause it, and future JT is going to look it up and get back to you. So this first file here, which is file 56, if you want to know more about it, there's not a whole lot to it. This is another one of those that has got a list of programs that are on a foreign broadcast uh, television. And in this case, it is out of Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, there's just a blurb here at the very bottom, and it says, Announcer introduced video report on alleged UFO sightings in Australia. One minute. Now, that's in May. So this document is from May 30th, 1993. So I did what? any good host would do and i googled may ufos in australia 1993 and nothing came up however in august the beginning of august of 1993 one of the most famous cases in australian history happened the kelly cahill incident so it is interesting but again the time doesn't quite fit so not much to that one but again that is number 56 and tonight folks we're going to do 10 of these so that's 56. Now on to number 57. And this is another one that's got a rundown of all of the different sites that this has been circulated to. And I'm just looking through for where is our UFO connection in this document. And okay, so this is the source is Moscow Ostenkino Television First Channel Network in Russian. And this is from the 28th of March, 1995. And we'll just go through and find out where is our UFO um, tie-in. Okay, interesting. This isn't UFO necessarily, but this says, Missile exploded in Krasnodar territory. Recent incident involving a missile nearly hitting nuclear power station in Voronezh is recalled. So I did an episode, the Voronezh account, uh, the UFO case in Russia, which is super famous. And I do find it interesting that this is in that area. Video shows missile in the air about to hit the ground. This footage is followed by an interview with an eyewitness who said that explosions were significant. No casualties, initial panic. Video shows damaged buildings a hole through the roof. Okay, so again, folks, I'm just trying to find our... UFO tie-in here. Okay, here we go. Number four. Video report from Tuimen of uh, on a new invention, flying saucer. Video shows the saucer moving around the ice of a frozen lake. An expert interviewed says the saucer can fly. Video shows it rising an inch or two off the ground for a few seconds. So, more hovering than flying, but still interesting. And again, folks, that's back in 1995 when I was just 
I was still in high school. So, yeah, interesting one. And I'm just looking here because sometimes there'll be multiple UFO things in the same um, document. So I'm just making sure we haven't missed anything else here, especially with the Russian stuff, because it's easy to hide in there amongst the names and that with the USSR files. But nope, nothing else there, really. Uh, and that is document number 57. But like I say, not too much there and not too much to go off of about this quote unquote flying saucer that's man made. So now we're on to number 58. And this is another one with a long list of circulating FBI bases. And this one says uh, Domestic Political Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, Serbia. So Serbian TV. It looks like um, GMT 31, 31 May 01. So I think I want to say this is going to be May of 2001. And sometimes it's not overly clear. But uh, it often makes sense as we go through. So, yeah, interestingly enough, there is a redacted box here. And it's not black. It's white, which is interesting. Okay. Uh, just scrolling through. <laughs> Retail prices in May. Just always, folks, scanning for that UFO item that's in here. Talking about dinar, so obviously this is pre-Euro. International Olympic Committee president visits Belgrade. Okay, here we go. Video report on appearance of crop circles in Sombar and Odzak area. 29 minutes. This report may contain copyrighted material. Interesting. Okay, so, folks, we're just going to have a very, well, I'm going to try to lift this straight out of the PDF, these two areas that I just said, and see what Google tells me. Where are they exactly? Yeah, okay, I got it lifted out. Um, okay, so this is in, it looks to be a small area. On the border of Bosnia Herzegovina and uh, I'm thinking Serbia. Sorry, folks. Um, this is just one of those that I'm not too familiar with. Yeah, it looks like it's on the border there. So, yeah, it's kind of the map's not very good. So I do apologize for that. But it looks like it's on the northern border. But anyway, yeah, apparently this document's talking about some crop circles out of there. So again, there are many people who don't really know and they think that crop circles only exist in England or maybe in England and the U.S., but folks all over the world, Europe, uh, Australia, there's been several in Australia. I think we've had some here before my time living here back in the 80s and 90s. So yeah, crop circles are not bound by being in the U.K. or being in the U.S., they are found all over the world. So yeah, that is document 58 if you're interested. But like I say, very, very little in that one too. Okay, 59. Now this one's looking more promising because often these ones in this format are a little bit better. So this one is number 59, as I say. It says case closed. 
R.E. Dr. Leon Davidson, ex-Leon Davidson. Dr. Leon Davidson is on our backs again, so I can't tell you which episode of the CIA Files we've discussed this in, but there are instances of people within the CIA complaining about this guy, bothering them for information, and wanting to know what's going on, and he's wanting explanations. He's not easily dissuaded, okay? So that's kind of the story, the background behind this. So it says, Dr. Leon Davidson is on our backs again. He wants a verbatim translation of the quote-unquote space message and the identification of the transmitter from which it came. Your attention is called to, and then it's redacted. So again, folks, anything that's crossed out that I either can't read or is deliberately marked out is, I just say, redacted. To... uh your attention is called to, and then redacted, letter to Davidson from Wallace and Elwood. Wallace and Elwood, Captain U.S. Air Force and U.S. Air Force, ATIC, ATIC, dated 5 August 1957, in which Elwood tells Davidson the message was in identifiable Morse code and from a known U.S. licensed radio station. This was intended to satisfy Davidson that he did not in fact, have a space message. He is not satisfied and explains that the characteristics of the sounds on the tape regarding of this message are not Morse type. Can you obtain from ATIC the message translation and the transmitter? Shortly, we'd like to dismiss this man once and for all. Yeah, it sounds like he was a real pain in their backside, eh? It's the, that's the kind of people we uh, respect around here. If you cannot obtain this information, Davidson is going to pressure us for permission to use Chicago office letterhead and other U.S. government letterhead he has received in this matter in an article for some space magazine. We are sending by Buckslip, so uh, I think that's a mailing envelope, this date a publication of Davidson criticizing the Air Force for concealment of information on flying saucers. Incidentally, Davidson is... No fool, and it appears that ATIC is treating him as if they think he can be satisfied with an SOP such as Captain Elwood's. Okay, so interesting, and it's approved for release in November of 1975. So yeah, these are the ones that I get quite interested in. So although there's no quote-unquote case here, I mean, he talks about this space message, it's more seeing that fascinating dynamics of what went on behind closed doors in the CIA. And it looks like they really weren't interested in people like this, you know, that were bothering them for information. And I can't say I'm shocked by that. Uh, I, I don't want to speak for all governments, but generally government doesn't like what they feel is wasting time answering questions like this. So, yeah, interesting one there, definitely. Rightio. So now, on to number 60. Now, this is another one that's in the type of a media one, like we talked about before, from a foreign... Basically, the CIA keeping tabs on what's in the foreign press, be it television, radio, or newspapers. So this one is a newer one, so this is probably going to be late 80s, early 90s again. It says, Take two of two FYI Soviet TV preview. 10 through the 16th of June. And I'm struggling to see a year here, but usually it does come out sooner or later. Okay. And the, these are usually ones where it's like the old TV guide or 
when you flip through and it tells you what's on TV at five o'clock, six o'clock, etc. So I'm just looking for again, what is our UFO tie-in here? And it's not always easy to spot. Right. Just going through here. <laughs> I see something redacted down there. Maybe that's it. Just okay. Here we go. You gotta love some of these folks. Um, just says eleven o'clock. Uh, UFOs. So eleven hundred, right? And yeah, that's it. Just UFOs. So it's hour long, and it was on at eleven hundred. Yeah. Uh, wish I had that on tape. And like I say, I can't see the exact year, but judging from the typeface. Every one of these I've seen has been in the late 80s, early 90s. And then the release date, approved for release, is February 2010, it looks like. So, yeah, I'd say that this is newer, meaning in the 80s or 90s. Again, hold on. Let me just see what it says here. Raycom Moscow. I was just trying to see if it referred to it as Russia or USSR, but I don't see either one. So, yeah, sorry, folks, nothing too overly exciting there. But again, this is what we've found when we do these CIA files. Some of them are pretty mundane, and then you'll hit that nugget of gold. Right, so here we are. Number 61 is the next one. And it says, information report preferred and, sorry, prepared and disseminated by CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, 10 October 1958. Uh, sighting of unidentified airborne objects near Leningrad. Okay, now that's interesting. So Leningrad is current day St. Petersburg. Used to be St. Petersburg uh, when the USSR ex existed. They renamed it Leningrad. Now it's back to St. Petersburg. And this was in July of 1958. Right, now this might be difficult. So we're going to do our best. So this is a photocopied black and white, very old document. And what I find is this often ends up being blurry. I'm going to do my best to piece it together for you, though. Okay, so we've got a bit of redacted. And then this is basically we've got about two big paragraphs of information. So it says nothing of interest occurred during our Leningrad visit. And on the evening of 11 July, we departed by train for Moscow. This 10 tour trips was uneventful. So, yeah, sorry if it's not overly clear. I'm just taking my best guess. Except for the incident which took place when we were about one hour out of the Leningrad station. I was looking out of the train window towards the... Uh, I can't tell if it's north or south or what. When I noticed two bright lights with gray smoke trails rising vertically into the air because of the poor visibility and the distance involved i could not tell whether the lights were propulsion flames of some sort or whether they were integral parts of larger objects i could not judge the speed of ascent nor could i tell how far away the objects were but they remained in view still in ascent for about 10 minutes I called them to the attention of the above-mentioned in-tourist guide. So, obviously, they're tourist, 
coordinator because back then if you wanted to go and tour anything in Russia, you had to have a government agent with you. And he just laughed and said, maybe they're launching two more satellites. Because again, this be in what what did I say? Fifty seven? Fifty eight. So uh Sputnik was fifty seven, I believe. So it says, we forgot the above incident until later in Moscow when the Russian-speaking member of the tour and I were given a short sightseeing trip around the city by redacted official when I shall call, who I shall call Ivanov and about whom I shall document later. Um, something I can't read, remarked to Ivanov that he had seen two bright lights rising above and if he knew what they might have been. Ivanov was driving along in the front seat of the car and without turning, he made a joking reference to Smetlinka. So I can't really read it. To the one made by our guide. So similar, I think it's... Sputnik, similar, something like that. So talking about satellites again. When we told him that the lights appeared to be traveling too slowly for rockets of that type, he laughed again and said, well, maybe they were flying saucers. My friend group along with the joke. Okay, my friend, I think it's went along with the joke. Stop kidding us, Ivanov. We know that flying saucers. We know that flying saucers. Something, something. Sorry, I just can't read it. At this, Ivanov immediately pulled the car off the road, stopped, and turned around to face us, evidently flustered. You do know what flying saucers look like, he inquired. When we registered surprise at this. He started the car up again and changed the subject completely. Uh, we did not discuss it with Ivanov or anyone else after that. Okay, so you do... Flying saucers look like. So, you do... Yeah, so it's like, you know... Sorry, folks, it's just hard to read, and it's really frustrating because I want to get every word for you, but I can't quite make it out. So it's like he was making a joke about we saw these lights in the sky and then the, both the tour guide and this Russian um, official said, oh, that must have been satellite launch. And then they said, no, 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 it was going too slow to be rockets like this. And he joked, oh, well, maybe it's a flying saucer. And then they said, oh, stop kidding or whatever. And he stopped the car very seriously and looked at them and said, you do whatever. uh what flying saucers look like. So he basically is saying he knows they're real or he knows what they look like. And they said after that, they didn't mention it again. So yeah, uh, very interesting. I will say that. And there are lots of stories like this from the fifties and sixties, especially uh, in the Soviet union and also in the U S and Western countries about officials just like, turning on a dime and going from kind of joking and jovial to serious. I've heard stories about people, some people who I've known, 
who have talked to ex-military officials, uh, ex-military people like Colonel and above in the U.S. military, and kind of joked about flying saucers and that, and just seen them get very serious about it. I knew one guy who knew a low-level general in the U.S. Marine Corps, and basically joked something about flying saucers or whatever and what was going on with things, and he just basically told him, if you know what's good for you, you know, real deadpan straight face, if you know what's good for you, you will not pry, you will not ask questions about this, and if you do, you're going to regret it. And just switched from civilian into that military mode and then back to civilian very quickly, and I asked him, oh, well, did you bring it up again? Did you ask him about it? And he said, no, of course not. I, It spooked him the way that he reacted. And this was after the Phoenix Lights incidents. This one, I was still in Southern California. And as you can imagine, in the U.S., a lot of people retire to these warmer areas like Southern California, Arizona, Nevada. And that's where this general lived, was in Southern California. And this guy knew him. So, yeah, interesting. So, anyway, that was document 61 again. Now, document 62 here. This one is says OSI, um, 29 May 1958. See the 58 or 38, but I'm sure it's 58 because I haven't seen any. Yeah, it is. There's another 58. I haven't seen anything in here older than about 56, I want to say. So it says 29 May 1958. Uh, original addresses, assistant to the director, Mr. Chapin, is got parentheses drawn around it. Office of Security, uh, DADC slash C slash SI, ASD slash SI, and then it's got a address one one four two four thirty third Street, uh, something Washington DC. Dear Mister, I can't make it out. Sadly, dear Mister, starts with a P. Uh, recently, both Lloyd. Dessiner and Bob Robertson um, yeah I can't make out that word been besieged by a Mr. Leon Davidson here we go again man they not like an old Leon with questions relative to their activities on and the results of the UFO panel which convened in Washington early in 1953 from the Washington overflights very good case that we haven't gotten to just yet in anticipation that you might uh, soon be bombarded similarly i am exploring topics of exchange of correspondence between robertson and davidson and something recommends strongly that you employ the general tenor of bob's letter should the occasion arise. In those cases where we have been required to correspond directly with Davidson, our reply has been nearly one of, merely one of acknowledging receipt and advising him that his queries had been forwarded to the Air Force for appropriate action. Please advise me in the event you become up in this matter, caught up in this matter, Best regards, Philip G. Strong. And then there's uh, attachments, uh, letter to Davidson, letter to Robertson. So again, this is them wanting to get rid of this meddling um, 
guy who's just driving them crazy. Uh, interesting. Again, it this uh, obviously this um, Leon Davidson was really a thorn in their side because we have just found document after document of them basically saying, get rid of him. Why is he still bothering us? And how can we pawn him off? And again, this would have been in and around the time that the CIA took over from the, I want to say took over from the OSI. And then it was decided that the C, the, the UFO stuff would go from the CIA over to the Air Force. And that's why they're pawning him off on the U.S. Air Force. Right. So interesting one. So that's 62. So now number 63. This is a different one I haven't seen before. This one says classification, Central Identification Agency. Uh, report number SO, some numbers I can't read, unfortunately. Information report. Date distributed, 31st July, 1950. Subject, uh, looks like Chilean slash Germany. Could be Chile. Yeah, Chile slash Germany, I think. Subject, German scientist article on flying disks. Okay, this hopefully is going to be something pretty cool because we've talked a little bit about this before and we've talked a bit about what happened with Nazis after the war, especially the scientists. And yeah, um, basically the Fourth Reich and all of that. And there's quite a bit already redacted I can see they covered up. It says, attached for your information is a copy in translation of an article submitted by Dr. Edward Ludwig for publication in Condor, a German language magazine published in Chile. The article is entitled The Mystery of the Flying Discs, a contribution to its possible explanation. Okay, um, and then we got lots of cursive writing that I'm struggling to make out through the photocopying. The significant consideration why there are hmm, boundary layer, object or air foil has been, yeah, sounds like there's one in the background there. Sounds like there's a flying saucer over my house right now, dive bombing me. Airfoil has been exploited to produce and in the factor containing the success of the flying saucer type of airfoil. So there, what I'm reading there, they're talking about it much more in the guise of a aircraft versus like a out-of-this-world type flying saucer. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, right. So there is, it looks like there's a bit of this typed article, and I'm going to try and see how well I can read it. Unfortunately, again, the photocopying has not done it any uh, justice, but hopefully I can read this well enough. So it says Central Intelligence Agency, The Mystery of the Flying Discs, a contribution to its possible explanation by Dr. Edward Ludwig, Santiago, Chile, A.V. Cristobal, Cologne, 1916. So that's his address, Avenue Cristobal Cologne or Christopher Columbus. Through the continuously reappearing reports on the appearance of new mysterious aircraft of unknown construction should be considered with severe skepticism as the result of a sort of mass hypnosis. Nevertheless, some of the detailed and 
coinciding accounts of technology, trained observers deserve attention. And okay, folks, actually, what I'm going to try and do here, because I can read some of I'm going to finish this paragraph and then future John's going to see if he can find this article online where it might be a little bit easier to read. Right. So it says observers deserve attention and permit one to draw conclusions as to the probable classification of the new aircraft. So I'm going to hit pause, folks, and hopefully I'll come back with something easier to read. But if not, we will continue on with this. Okay, folks, it's Future John here. In fact, it's Future John from the next day. So I wandered off and had some things go on, and now I'm back. But I did look this up online, and unfortunately, there wasn't a better kind of transcription that I could find of this file. I found different people commenting on certain sections, but not the file in total. So we're just going to do our best to muddle through it, okay? Um, I'll try not to get hung up too much on any certain words. If they don't make sense, we'll just carry on. So I'll start again from the beginning. So again, this is a Central Intelligence Agency file. It's titled The Mystery of the Flying Discs, and this is about that article that came out in Condor Magazine, a German-language magazine in Chile in, I want to say, 1950 off the top of my head. So anyway, here we go. It says, A Contribution to Its Possible Explanation. So that's the subtitle of The Mystery of the Flying Discs by Dr. Edward Ludwig, Santiago, Chile, uh, Avenue Cristobal Colon, 1916. So like I say, that would have been the address. Through the continuously reappearing reports on the appearance of new mysterious aircraft of unknown construction should be considered with severe skepticism as the result of a sort of mass hypnotic uh, or hap sorry, mass hypnosis. Nevertheless, some of the detailed and coinciding accounts of technically trained observers deserve attention and permit one to draw conclusions as to the profitable or sorry probable classification of these new aircraft. Since so far the observations have been made mainly in the dark, which means that only the luminous parts of the craft are visible, every report brings the description of shining disks or circles. If one should discard the absurd conjecture that these aircraft originate from beyond this Earth. So, again, folks, he's already got his eggs in the basket that this is not from outer space. Then it is easy to arrive at the conclusion that the shining circles bear a relation to the... Um, something... the Okay, the exhaust of a rotary gas turbine. The possibilities exist that the rotor of a turbine is used at the same time as a stabilizing top and is therefore fixed vertically to the level of the other turbine rings, which in the darkness produces the effect of the rings of Saturn he's got in parentheses. Now, sorry folks, there's a reason why he's got a feeling that this isn't from outer space, and we'll get into it shortly here in the document. These observations remind me of a completely new type of aircraft, and this is what I'm talking about, which was developed during the years I worked in the research plant of Professor Junkers in Dossau, so this is in Germany in World War II, which was attached to the airplane factories known all over the world. I do not know how many of my co-workers are still alive today, but I do know that Dr. Bach, professor at the Technical High School of Berlin, 
and who was at that time my chief and friend of many years, has been deported to the Soviet Union. The name of Professor Bach was never widely known due to his modest character, but he may have been the greatest genius of German airplane theoretics, and later, in view of his extraordinary faculties, he was named head, head constructor of the Ministry of German Airways and director of the German Institute of Airways Research in Berlin, in Berlin Aldershof. Okay, so a few things to unpack here. For you to say that he may have been the greatest, not designer, but the greatest genius of German airplane theoretics, that's saying something. When you go back and you look at what came out of World War II, we went into World War II and the vast majority of air forces in the world were flying uh, biplanes, right? We come out of World War II and the Germans have got very effective jet fighters that basically the only way the Allies were shooting them down was on takeoff and landing in six years, right? So if you're saying that this guy may be the greatest of the great as far as um, his faculties and his intelligence in this area, I stand up and listen. And also... In night, so this again, I'm sure this is 1950, folks. So this is only five years after World War II. So what I'm saying is, a lot of these people were still alive at that time. So if they picked him to be the director of the German Airways and the German Institute of Airways Research, right? He knew his stuff because there were lots of other geniuses running around um, at the time after the war. So yeah, it's um, it's interesting. And as he said, the reason that he's so understated is because he's so quiet. So it says, in order to explain to a wider circle of readers the basic idea of the new aircraft, I should like to submit first the following explanations. And then there's writings in cursive, but I can't really read it. Unfortunately, something, the last word looks like an physicist, but, and then that is redacted. So I think it's a name and then it's been redacted. The first physician and mathematician who considered the new science of aerodynamics after the commencement of purely experimental developments of aircraft construction was the Russian professor. Uh, I can't make out his name. I can't see the first letter and it says, oh, it looks like O-W-S-K-I. So Alski, so something Alski, so could be Sikorsky, I'm not sure, of Moscow. Before the First World War, okay, well, at least that narrows it down if you want to look it up. And together with my esteemed teacher, Dr. Kuta, from the Technical High School of Stuttgart, Germany, he developed the theory of airplane wing beam. Professor Kuta succeeded in establishing the famous differential equation of the boundary stratum, which for the first time throws light on the process in current particles, and which in any case explains for the first time theoretically the reason why a plane wing can bear a load while moving forward through the air. Since then, the Kuta... Okay, it's Joukowsky. Okay. So, for the first time, the Kuta-Joukowsky theory of airplane wing beam has been the foundation of all aerodynamics. As already mentioned, the core of this work is the so-called boundary... It says stratum, but they've crossed it out and written something there that's hard to see. Again, it's written in cursive, and it's fairly fine which consists of the thin layer of air in which the transition of velocity zero to the velocity of the moving object takes place. 
If the object is streamlined, then the boundary stratum will endeavor not to sever. No whirlwinds will occur, and therefore no loss of energy will take place in the stratum. Since nature always functions most economically, it always tries to avoid loss of energy, and therefore a plane wing would rather bear weight than cause a disruption of the course of the current and let the wing drop. Okay, that makes sense. And see, I like things like that, because at my heart, my friends, I am a simple man. And when you explain it to me in simple terms, it makes a lot more sense. I don't know about you, but that works well for me. Right, so moving on further into document 63. The logical conclusion based on these theoretic discoveries were obvious. Already in the year 1915, Professor, looks like H.C. Doman? Dow Bauman, sorry, Bauman, uh, yeah also from the Technical High School of Stuttgart, received a patent on the split wing, through which the artificial interruption of the course of the current, the tearing of the boundary stratum, and the consequent breaking and diminishing of the landing speed would be attained. This pr procedure was later applied to a great extent to the fighter plane uh, Muster, JU-88, under the name of Dive Brace. Dive Break. Okay, sorry. Dive Break. This patent had to be handed to the English factory, Handley Page, after World War I, which explains why the nose of Handley Page split wing is more widely known. Okay. However, developments proceeded, so that was due to the Treaty of Versailles. At the end of World War I, there were, uh, there were a lot of conditions in the German surrender that the Allies demanded. And one of the things was that they shared technological advancements that they had over the Allies from World War I. So that's why they said that these plans would have had to be handed over. However, developments proceeded. It was principally the Aerodynamic Experimental Institute of the Göttingen, Göttingen, sorry, G-O-T-T-I-N-G-E-N. I should be able to pronounce it, but I'm struggling, so we're just going to spell it out. University. Directed by the renowned professors Prantl and Betts and constructor Flatner, which drew its conclusions from the theory of the airplane wing beam. Flatner proved that the conditions of a rotating object are similar to those which appear in a trans transtorsion movement this evolved the flattener rotor so again sorry folks this is all photocopied from something that was typed in 1950 and due to being photocopied and probably from the original ink from the typewriter some of the letters are a bit smudged or difficult to read so i'm sorry it's kind of herky-jerky start stop professor yunkers head of the um head of the well-known airplane works in dessau yeah of course yunkers who in the year 1915 received his path-breaking patent on the one-piece metal wing without junctures, ordered a research group, which was headed by Professor Dr. Bach. So the aforementioned Dr. Bach, who's supposed to be the greatest genius, yada, yada, yada. And to which I had the honor to belong, to investigate to what extent the uplift of a wing could be increased through the attachment of a flattener rotor in the shape of a cylinder turning at great speed. The cylinder was two-thirds of the length of the wing and was installed in the nose of the wing, where it could best be adapted to the wing's profile. To assist us with aerodynamics problems, the, got, the, the Gottenden, Gotten, Gottengen, I think that's how you say it, university sent us Professor Presdel, Pre, 
Prandiddle, sorry. It's hard to read. The experiments turned out to be extremely difficult and involved many casual, uh, many casual ticks, casualties. Yeah, it is casualties. Involved many casualties. The purely technical question of the speedy uplift of a long cylinder of light construction could not be solved at that time. Inexplicable vibrations and axle breakings occurred time after time, which Professor Junkers ordered us to investigate, and with which we were occupied for another, for months, sorry, for months, not less than four men, all experienced and trained pilots of the First World War and outstanding engineers died in these experiments. Wow, okay. So they lost four seasoned military pilots from the war in this experiment. It was clear to us that only a gas turbine could produce the direct uplift of the cylinder. However, since meanwhile more pressing problems awaited solution, experiments with this type of aircraft were interrupted. Meanwhile, the Aerodynamic Experimental Institute of G <laughs> made new and enlightening discoveries. Professor Betts found that supersonic speeds, which as were produced by quickly rotating propellers, created entirely new conditions. This investigation, however, needed the furnishing of a wind tunnel for supersonic speeds, which could only be built many years later, and which after the war was forwarded to the United States, where it greatly amazed, I think it's amazed, all scientists. So they're talking about after World War II, this wind tunnel was sent to the U.S. How light was shed on many things, it was found that the tearing of the boundary stream or stratum, at supersonic speeds involve much greater resistance, so that an object with full atmospheric pressure practically hangs from upper layer of air and theoretically experiences there the same uplift as an object of the same surface in the water. The converting of the revelations found in research into reality, however, needed the solution of the starting force through a gas turbine or another equivalent machine or instrument. Uh, many, therefore, unexplained phenomena now found, and then they've crossed out found and written repeatedly in uh, pen, now repeatedly and now, so I think it's repeatedly found an explanation. For exa example, it had often been observed that the range of quickly rotating uh, missiles, it's just hard to, again, make out what it says. But I guess we'll go with missiles. Drow uh, Wirkung um, was much greater and then could be explained according to the laws of ballistics. Okay, so that makes sense if it was a rotating missile because of ballistics. Okay. Paradoxical explanations were sought for this such as that the air resistance decreases with growing speeds. Today we know that these quickly rotating missiles swim in the surrounding layers of air and therefore lose part of their weight. Full clarification was brought about only with supersonic speeds, which again wouldn't have happened until about 43, which were obtained in the experiments with the rockets, V-2, and were arrived at by flights of many hundreds and thousands of kilometers, and which can only be explained by the way in which these missiles literally hang in the air. The surprise of the specialized scientists the world over at the astounding results of the German V-2 was not less than that which is produced today by the appearance of the mysterious flying discs. Very true. So, in World War II, the Germans developed the V-1, which was a fairly rudimentary rocket. 
and then they developed the V2. The V2 is basically what allowed us as mankind to go into space. It is the predecessor of ICBMs or intercontinental ballistic missiles. It is basically the one that you can trace everything back to when we talk about what we think of as missiles and uh, things that allow space flight today. It all basically came from the V2. So yeah, at the time it was a huge shock to everyone and that is a good correlation People being amazed by the V2, people being amazed by what they're calling flying discs or flying saucers, um, not even 10 years later, again being 1950, so about seven years later. In the same way in which the ingenious discernment of Professor Junkers pointed the way for airplane construction for the whole world, thus also may his idea of attaching flattener rotors have a revolutionary effect. Airplanes of this type must have such an enormous carrying capacity as to be practically comparable to amphibious planes of the same size. The lack of uplift produced by the flattener rotors can especially be achieved through the oblique position of the entire airplane. So what he's saying here is that if you have a plane with this rotor-type shaped engine, with this uh, circular thing, it should be able to carry about as much in the air as a ship can in the sea, which is pretty impressive because what he's saying is, you're looking at a fundamentally different physics here. Instead of having a plane flying through the air, it's swimming through the air. And look, again, folks, I've been reading and studying about this stuff for as long as I can remember. I know at least at the age of four or five, I was reading about flying saucers and UFOs and that. And this is new to me. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. There's always something in this field that's fascinating, something new to learn. And this is coming directly from the CIA, okay? So, again, I know they didn't write this article, but it just goes to show. Now, the last page here is just, I don't know why, but the page is on its side. So, I'm just trying to get it to turn. And, of course, uh, my free PDF program being the pain that it is, it doesn't want to do that for free. It wants me to upgrade. So give me a second here, folks, again, and future John will be back when we can turn it around and carry on reading very shortly. Okay, I think I've got it now. Didn't take too long as well, which is always good. So it says here, with a positive starting angles, with the positive starting angles in connection with the enormously high starting speed, the attaching of speedily rotating tops ensures side stability. There is also the possibility of attaching horizontal auxiliary propellers of the helicopter type. And what about the question of the starting for forok? Starting. Uh, I'm just gonna guess it's. What about the question of the starting force? The safety of such an aircraft stands and falls on the yeah, on the starting force of the cylinders, and only too well do I remember the casualties inflicted by the lack of it. As I mentioned before, only the development of a gas turbine can bring the solution, since it consists only of rotating parts and works with the dependability of a steam engine. There is only one more question to be answered. Could such an aircraft carry enough fuel for worldwide journeys? This question is easily answered in the affirmative. In the first place, such an aircraft has a tremendous carrying capacity, as I was just mentioning, as we have already seen. 
And in the second place, chemical research has made astounding developments in this respect. We know today, quite apart from atomic energy, carriers of energy of unsuspected power and duration. Okay, so he's saying that we know with atomic energy, you've got something there that up until we developed it, you would never think there would be that much power um, and sustainability, meaning long last. I mean, this is why we put space probes out there with a radioactive core to power them like Voyager that's been going out in space longer than I've been alive um, and it's only just now running out of energy. It should be remembered that the missiles of German anti-tank weapons were coated with chemical substances which melted up to 20 coats of steel plate within fractions of a second. Yep, very true. Energy carriers of this type, if applicable to a gas turbine, would make an action uh, action radius possible, which far surpasses that of gasoline engines. The future will show whether the flying disks are only the products of imagination, or whether they are the results of a far advanced German science which possibly, as well as the nearly finished atomic bombs, may have fallen into the hands of the Russians. Okay, so look, for me, this like is a home run document and why i say that is if you've been listening to this show for any length of time you know that i'm very interested in the ufo subject i'm very interested in the end of world war ii what happened with german scientists where did they go um where did all this technology go and here we've got this all tied together and basically this gentleman this scientist um and again i do apologize i keep forgetting it's um it's just fairly early morning here while I'm doing this. This um, uh, Ludwig, uh, is it? Is it Ludwig? Yeah, so this Dr. Edward Ludwig is basically saying that his opinion is that these discs, flying discs, UFOs, flying saucers, whatever they are, whatever you want to call them, I should say, are man-made and made with German technology he saw during the war and he worked on and developed in the interwar period. So the interwar period is the time between 1918 and 1939, between World War One and World War Two, And he feels very strongly that this has got nothing to do with aliens or outer space or anything else, that this is coming from Russia. So yeah, again, this to me is a very interesting document. And, and it's one of those that just, again, this is why I do these CIA files. It's really interesting. And there will be those of you out there in the audience which are much more technically savvy than I am when it comes to aerodynamics and that, that are probably sitting there going, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Or, well, I, I would hope so anyway. Hopefully you haven't heard of all this because, like I said, it's a lot of this is new to me. And that's saying something, my friends. So anyway, again, that is document 63. Now, look. I'm a IT Cro-Magnon, right? I do okay, but I'm I not a Gen Y or Gen Z or Millennial, whatever. What I'm saying is technology was not something we were born into and we learned this in school. So if you want to know how I rotated that page for free, basically, was that I just took a screenshot of the text and then I put it in a Word document and then I made the Word document uh, landscape and turned it around so I could read it for you. Just so you know, if you get this document and you don't know how to rotate it, that's how I did it. I don't. It's really weird because you've got one 
one, two, three, or sorry, one, two pages upright, three pages upright, and then this page sideways. It was a bit odd. So again, that's document 63. We've got two more to go here. The next one is obviously document 64, and this is another one of those documents that's a bit of a rundown about what's on foreign media. And this is, um, it's got the rundown of all the places that it was distributed to. So, you know, Honolulu, um, London, yada, yada, yada. We've been over this before. Washington, D.C., Japan. So basically it's saying everyone that we gave this information. Okay, this is an interesting one because this is in what we would call the Western world. So although it's Asia, it's the Western world, the Philippines. It's not behind the Iron Curtain. And this one says, uh, I think it's September 20th, 98. But usually we find that out as we go along. But it looks like 1998. Out of the Philippines, out of Quezon City, TV program summary. Quezon City, television and Tagalog, uh, 1000 hours, GMT, 7th September. Uh, might be 00, zero actually. Looks like it's two zeros, but it'll be right around. Yeah, it'll be right around that late 90s, early 2000s is all I'm saying here. So now we play our game of finding where is the UFO mentioned in here? Uh, UFO, flying saucer, etc. I'm just looking through it because what we've been doing, as you know, is then we'll go back and we'll see if there's a case in and around that time. Now, this does say on it, it's got a stamp from the CIA that says approved for release July 2002. Right, um, where are we? Here we go. Las Pinas. Rizal residents say they sighted UFOs. Expert says those must be light effects. Video shows residents speaking to correspondents. Okay, I actually think I've heard a bit about this. Let me just, we're just going to very quickly do a Google, and I'm not going to log off or, you know, go away. I'm just going to look here. Las Pinas. Philippines UFOs, and we'll see what we find out. Yeah, okay. This is the one that I thought I had heard something about. Uh, maybe it was another CIA file. 2000, this is out of Wikipedia, my friends. 2000s Los Pinas sighting. Antonio Israel claimed that he filmed alleged small bits of light dancing frenetically in the evening sky in Las Pinas on September the 3rd, 2000. Israel claims that the UFOs were also seen by a nearby barangay, and possibly by residents of Paranaque. Paranaque. Sorry if I butchered that, my friends. Scientists from the UN and the Philippine Atmospheric Geophysical and Astronomical Services Administration, or PAGASA is the acronym, investigated Israel's video and his house, but could not determine a cause for the sighting. Now, interesting enough, then you go down to 2004, and there's another sighting in Las Pinas. More than 10 UFOs were seen in Las Pinas about 7 p.m. local time. Now, we all know, well, anyone who's into this at all, my friends, right? Anyone who looks up stuff on UFOs, Wikipedia is very slanted towards the skeptic side. And that's fine. I just want you to know that this is, it, they're not really objective and they're not really, they're definitely not a true believer thing. If you had to say, uh, zero, okay, let's say zero is true believer, and 100 is full-blown skeptic, and 50-50 is where I try to be on the show here. Uh, I know I might not always be, but you get the point. 
uh, wiki is probably around 65 to 70. So it skews towards the skeptical side, but it's not just completely there. At least they will cite claims that others make about what it could have been versus just omitting it. But yeah, interesting that you had these two sightings four years pretty, you know, within four years difference. Yeah, the first one was on September 3rd, 2000, and the other one was August 28th, 2004. So almost exactly four years apart in Las Pinas. So yeah, it again, this unfortunately is just a mention of the CIA. There might be a video out there about it from the Philippines. I'm not sure. But if it's in Tagalog, I definitely need it to be translated anyway, my friends. So now we are up to number 65, right? And this is going to be our last file for this episode of the CIA files. And then JT's got to get off, try and get this, get off the air, try and get this episode edited and up for you. Because I've got another work-related appointment I've got to go to this morning. So this one here says... Um, uh, procedure slash action so this is like a it's not a project blue book report but it's like a report template right but again this is typed this will be very old um and so it can be a bit hard to read so uh so procedure slash action routine um date 25th june 1976 so before i existed before i was a gleam in my daddy's eye uh, 1425, so that would be 225 p.m. Subject, case redacted. UFO research slash ORD request for additional information. Bunch of redacted. Reference A, redacted. Reference B, redacted. 1. ORD has exhibited some interest in the work of a qualified, of redacted. A qualified analyst is currently attempting to evaluate redacted system and has requested additional information. 2. We know that in some of the earlier correspondence from your office, reference B, which is redacted, mention was made of the possibility of obtaining more complete description of redacted, redacted system. If this possibility still exists, ORD would appreciate seeing whatever is available. And I should know what ORD is, folks, but we'll look it up after we finish this document. 3. Please keep us advised of any new developments. And then redacted, redacted who sent it, redacted who the authorating, uh, author, authenticating officer is, redacted who's the releasing officer. So, yeah, we don't want to say much is basically what this comes down to. We're not going to tell you, the public, anything about this document. Now, let's see. What's the ORD? And I should know this. ORD. ORD. It's not Chicago O'Hare. ORD. Hmm. ORD. Sorry, my friends. Um. ORD. U.S. Government, because I'm sure it's a government. Office of Research and Development is a scientific research arm of the EPA. Its leading-edge research informs agency decisions and supports the emerging needs of EPA stakeholders, including the agency's state, tribal, and community partners. Now, that comes directly from EPA.gov, so there you go. It is the Office of Research and Development, and I thought it sounded familiar. And who better to look at this 
technology, whatever it is that they don't want to tell us about. So, folks, look, I found that very interesting, and I think that there's several hits in those files when we kind of go hit-miss, what was something there that was worth reading. And definitely, look, the uh, I think it was 56, the one with uh, with Ludwig and um, the him believing that these were craft that were developed somewhere in Germany for use later by the Russians. Interesting. Anyway, my friends, I do hope you liked revisiting the CIA files. It's been a while, and I've had a few people say, hey, when are you going to do that again? And when I looked it up, I found it had been, I think, about a year. So I thought, let's do this instead of a News of the Damned. So again, in the short upcoming future, we're going to have Chaz's interview that I've got to get edited and up, and then we're going to get that Benny and Barney Hill done. And I'll be back to work in less than a month, my friends, so I'm going to do my best to get done what I can ASAP. But yeah, just bear in mind, when I go back to work, again, work's got to be first, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do about our home situation with the uh, the issue I've been dealing with that's been chewing up all my time, but I won't be able to do both full-time. Uh, that's obvious. So we will see what we do when we get there. But aside from that, my friends, I do hope you're all right. Again, I know the Northern Hemisphere has been suffering with heat and fires and drought all over the U.S. and Europe, and down here we've had a lot of flooding, thankfully not near me, touch wood. But yeah, I do wish the best for you. Let's hope that as we truck along towards 23, that it's going to be 2023 will be better than the last few years. But aside from that, stay safe, my friends. Stay in such stay in touch. <laughs> Don't be afraid to reach out. I'll do my best to get back to you ASAP. Take care, and uh, I'll keep you posted every step of the journey.